This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Tim and I just broke down some of the cases, and I do think among those top headlines are confirmed cases in the U.S. soaring 40%, 47%, excuse me, in the week ending Sunday. So that's the largest weekly rise since April of 2020. And we know even in the Europe, in, in European nations, like they're opening up, Tim, but they're very cautious uh, in terms of how they do it. It's not just that. We're also seeing some vaccine news. The Washington Post reporting that the FDA is expected to announce new warnings on uh, right. J&J COVID vaccine. We saw J&J shares fall on that news. Well, let's get right into it with Dr. Rhonda Meadows, president of health management at Providence St. Joseph Health, joining us on the phone from Renton, Washington. Dr. Meadows, um, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? (laughs) Uh, Doing well. You know, Carol and I, late last week, we started talking a lot about the variant and we started talking a lot about what we should be doing, even though we're vaccinated to protect ourselves as we continue to see cases increase. And we're just eager to hear from you how you're reading into the startling number of cases that we're seeing reported around the United States, even when vaccinations are readily available. Well, they're readily available, but we've got people who are not taking advantage of their their access and the ability to actually get them. We talk about people being vaccine hesitant. But if we really looked at it, there's probably five different groups, people who decline the vaccine because they don't believe that COVID uh, virus itself is going to be of harm to them or to their loved ones. People who delay because they wanted to see how the vaccine was going to do in terms of long-term side effects and immunity. And the people who recently decided they want to get it, now they need to find access, transportation, and time out of work to go get the vaccine itself. And then finally, remember that our children under the age of 12 are not yet authorized to receive the vaccine. We've got a lot of people who are unvaccinated at a time when the COVID virus itself continues to grow and to mutate. The Delta variant is the one that we are all watching. It's the one that is the dominant COVID virus that is going across our nation as we speak. Um, and it is accounting for about 99% of all hospitalizations from COVID and all almost 100% of deaths. Dr. Meadows, one of the reasons we love talking with you and all of the team at uh, Providence St. Joseph Health is the first official case was confirmed uh, of COVID-19 in Washington State at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. That was back in January uh, January of 2020. I've got to say, is there any discussions that you guys are having a little bit of like tingles up the spine saying, wait a minute, we've, we've felt this before, we've seen this before, or is it different because... We do have a playbook on how to treat it. We do have vaccines. So what's the difference of people who might be listening to our broadcast right now and who might be a little nervous? Well, I have to tell you that what's different is we actually know quite a bit more than we did last January. Um, We actually know that the vaccine does work when it is received by people. And we know how to better treat people when they do come down with the viral infection itself. We've got a lot more things to do to help people now than we had last year. Um, Our difficulty is now in making sure that we do the extra work and identifying where there are pockets of people who are unvaccinated Mm -hmm. and helping them get access to those vaccines. Um, If they don't want it, then we have to make sure that they understand what risk they're taking and what risk they're putting others at. Well, that's a good question. And especially, you know, Tim pointed out, and this is, I think, probably 
our most important headline today is the FDA expected to announce a new warning on the J&J COVID vaccine. This is coming from the Washington Post. Headlines like that make people even more nervous about getting the vaccine. By not getting the vaccine, you can't force somebody to do it, right? It's it's their That's choice. Right. But having said that, then for those who do get vaccinated, what do they need to be careful about then? Understanding that there are people still out there that can be hosts and carriers of new variants. And can we, so who are vaccinated, be a carrier of these new variants as well? So less likely, if you're fully vaccinated, meaning you've received two doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, you are less likely to be a carrier and less likely to get the illness. Not 100%, but mm-hmm. 90-something percent, right? So much higher. Um, I think what people need to think about when they're getting the vaccine today, even when they hear the different news, whether it's from J&J or someone else, is that they make sure that they weigh their own risk, their own health risk to of what COVID would do to them if they actually got it, the actual illness itself. Um, and make sure that they also weigh the risk of what it'll do to their loved ones if they are the carrier or the source of transmission to their loved ones in their home. Particularly when people live in multi-generational homes, there's an increased risk. Um, that far exceeds any side effect potential for the vaccine itself. We have heard. But I understand no. worries. Well, we have heard stories just in the last minute, and then we're going to come back with you, um, Dr. Meadows. But I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you at, at, at Providence St. Joseph Health are, are requiring people who work there to get vaccinated. We, uh, we don't actually have a vaccine mandate. We have a vaccine policy where we're encouraging our workforce to get the vaccine, if they decline to get the vaccine for whatever reason, uh, then they are actually required to wear uh, personal protective gear to protect both themselves, the patients, and their colleagues at work. Um, this applies to everybody in our healthcare facilities, um, both ambulatory, acute, anywhere mm-hmm. that, and long-term care. Do you anticipate that that could change if yes. these get full FDA approval? I do. I think it's um, a matter of when it gets full approval when we're able to get people to really um, buy in and feel more trust, that small group that's still hesitant, we have work to do to encourage them um, to make sure they understand what's going on. Um, At the same time, we also need to continue the effort of keeping people that they are treating and caring for safe. We have that responsibility as well. I want to get back to Dr. Rhonda Meadows, President of Health Management at Providence St. Joseph Health. It is one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S., was home to the first confirmed COVID case back in early 2020. She is still with us on the phone from Renton, Washington. Renton, Washington excuse me. Hey, Dr. Meadows, one thing I wanted to just follow up on the conversation we were having uh, before the break is that, so what do we, the, are those individuals who've gotten the vaccine need to be concerned about, wary about when it comes to those who haven't had it? I think it's more a matter of those who are already vaccinated, encouraging those who haven't to get vaccinated. Uh, Because as long as there are unvaccinated pockets of people, there is actually the opportunity for the virus to continue to mutate and spread. Right now with the Delta variant, we're looking at um, something that is more highly transmissible. um, And it is causing 99% of the people um, who are sick in hospitalization for COVID um, it's also accounting for 99% of the deaths that are occurring. The counts are increasing. The people who are vaccinated are actually much more protected. Um, they're less likely to get ill. Um, but we, what we don't want them to do is to become carriers. Less likely, but still possible. Uh, so it's really more about the unvaccinated. 
Okay. Um, the people who are vaccinated have children are going to be wanting to take, protect their children if they're under the twelve under the age of twelve and can't be vaccinated yet. Dr. Meadows, I, I want to talk about something that, that Carol and I have spoken a lot about on, on Bloomberg Business Week Radio, and it's the other crises that are happening while we are still dealing with this pandemic. There's been a renewed focus on mental health over the last 18 months because of isolation and the way that the pandemic has affected each and every one of us in, in, in different and diverse ways. And then I'm wondering about community support systems for mental health during crises such as these. What is available and to what extent are, are people actually tapping into them? I think we're going to find um, that what the services that people tapped into during 2020 and 2021, uh, most of us knew that we did not have enough um, clinic or professional-based in-person sites available for access. People have availed themselves to virtual, um, online mental health services and group counseling and group chats. We'll need more of those. What I'm expecting, and I think what most of us are expecting, is that the increase in depression, substance use, uh, substance abuse, um, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress type disorders will not have been resolved anytime soon. What you can do is actually get the uh, resources increased and available to address them. And this is not just for adults. I am probably more concerned about children. Uh, because mm-hmm. they, again, not only have suffered through the pandemic, but disruption of their social circles, yeah. of their education, of their home life, um, and of the social supports that they normally would get if they were in the schools or in community groups and activities. So this, I think this is going to be a long-term um, challenge that we're going to have to address. And if we haven't started enough now, we need to get going. In terms um, otherwise, of, we may find ourselves with a, with a generation of lost children. No, it's a really good point, a really important point, uh, and something we can't just kind of forget as the world gets gets back to somewhat of a quote-unquote normal sta- status. Um, I do have a question for you, though. In your conversations with healthcare plans, I mean, are things changing in terms of how we think about care, wellness care? We have lots of conversations about it, but I do wonder whether or not we're thinking differently about how we all take care of our health generally uh, when we're feeling good and how we look about, think about maintaining that wellness. And just got about 40 seconds here. Okay. Uh, we, we are both on the health plan side and our delivery side. And I think while this, I'm speaking about Providence, it's actually across the board and other industry partners that we've been working with. Um, wellness, prevention, immunization, but also the importance of actually doing integrated care that includes mental health services. Um, most places you will see will also have a commitment to health equity, which means addressing the disparities that have been there long term, as well as disparities in COVID right now. Uh, we have another opportunity right now today to prevent the next wave of COVID illnesses from being disparate, right, from impacting Black and Hispanic populations worse. Right now, the vaccination rates in these populations is still lower right. than we want to see them. Uh, they, we, we did make some gains, but not enough. Yeah. We have lots of work to do. All right. We've got to run. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Dr. Rhonda Meadows, President of Health Management at Providence St. Joseph Health, on the phone from Wenton, Washington. The gaps just are still there, Tim. Yeah. it's on, it's it's In a way, it's just mind-boggling to think we're so far, but yet so far away from actually being done with this pandemic. Yeah, exactly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
Coming up in this week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week, a story on how crypto exchanges have a plan to beat Binance. It's the exchange that has quietly and rather mysteriously taken the top spot among the world's cryptocurrency exchanges. So unraveling some of the mystery of this very mysterious world in general is Bloomberg News finance reporter Kat Chaklinski. She's on the phone in New York City along with Business Week editor Joel Weber on the remote access line in Brooklyn. And we already had like a really great conversation about what well, this say is everything so we said again. Yeah, no. Uh, Rewind. I, you know, what, what stands out to me, the story that Kat was the lead writer on is sort of what this universe of crypto exchanges looks like. And there is a sort of a bad boy actor that is the elephant in the room here, which is which is Binance, right, Kat? And in order to compete with um, Binance, what have the competitive landscape of crypto exchanges chosen to do? For many years now, it's been really hard to compete with Binance. I mean, they list so many coins, you know, they really are, you know, they've taken the top spot um, quite easily. And so now we're seeing a lot of exchanges as Binance sort of is in the crosshairs of a lot of global regulators and under a lot of scrutiny. We see more exchanges saying, hey, no, we're going to be sort of, you know, the one that follows the rules and we're going to hope that that strategy long term pays off. Whether it does, I think will be sort of remain to be seen. But, you know, I think it's one way that a lot of exchanges now are trying to plot their own path. Binance, though, doesn't even allow U.S. customers. Explain what's going on here, because there's also Binance. Am I saying this right? Binance.us or Binance U.S.? You're correct. And yeah, and they're they're different. They were founded by the you know same person and they uh, have licensed some technology in in the past. But um, but they maintain it very separately. And I think that's what you've seen a lot by exchanges. I mean, if you look at many of the top ones, a lot of them don't actually allow U.S. investors. And part of this is sort of the strict regulatory uh, regime we, we tend to have in this country, even though, you know, crypto obviously is still a newer asset to be regulated. And I think part of that is many, many of these exchanges say we don't, you know, we're not going to go through all these hurdles in a constantly changing world. But you see many exchanges like, you know, take Gemini, obviously founded by the Winklevoss twins. They're really trying to say, no, it's the right path is to enter this, you know, this more regulated country and try and plot a path here. And that's how long term, you know, our strategy is going to pay off. Let, let's talk more about the Winkle Vi, the, the plural <laughs> form of the Winklevoss <laughs> twins um, and, and Gemini. Cat. Um, um, so the, the, what they basically say they're doing is like, we know that there will be rules eventually. And so we need to basically get ahead of regulators and and accept that there will be rules, right? Um, so how has that worked out for them versus even the other exchanges that are saying something similar? Yeah, so I mean, that is their strategy. They created the Virtual Commodity Association, which was sort of, you know, essentially to be like kind of a, almost a self-policing sheriff for this industry to think about how do you actually, you know, set up a regulatory scheme and an asset that's so new that many regulators are just trying to get their heads around. But, you know, it hasn't worked out obviously that well yet and that's because we've seen companies like Binance who will list every coin you know and um, maybe are a little less scrutinizing with those um, we've seen them jump to the top and I think you know but the companies that are trying to follow these regulations are saying now that Binance is under a lot of scrutiny they're saying hey you know this is this is part of our strategy is to work our way through these, you know, regulations, even if they're new, because it is going to be worth it in, in the end. Um, but, you know, even to Gemini's point, you know, they say uh, the landscape in, here in the U.S. is moving very slow. So they've got to, you know, kind of expand a little more globally to make sure that, that it 
they can keep pace. Right. And Kados, the exchanges, too, to some extent, are doing their own policing, right? I mean, there's so many new cryptocurrencies out there. There's thousands. So they've got to kind of weed through and decide which ones actually get to trade on their exchanges. Agreed. And that is actually kind of challenging. You know, we, we talked to someone at Galaxy Digital, Jason Urban. He's their uh, global co-head of trading. And he said, you know, not only do you have to, A, figure out how to connect all these coins to the exchange, you have to make sure you have the setup and the technology behind it, but you also have to sort of scrutinize, you know, whether this is an unregistered, unregistered security. And there's not a lot of clarity. So you have to sort of you know, have a lot of legal and compliance teams. And that's what we've seen over the past, you know, years is um, a lot of these exchanges, such as Coinbase, which obviously recently went public, hiring more people to help with compliance and policy and, and issues like that. Which is a whole other issue. If you become a public entity where you're trading, I don't know. I can't get my head around it. So, Kat, can we just take a step back here? Because I think this is a world that is still unfamiliar to so many people. And, and, and really explain people for people who haven't necessarily bought and sold cryptocurrency, what it is exactly these exchanges do, the services they offer. Yeah, so many of them obviously offer a range of services. But obviously the big one is they allow you to actually trade the coins on them. Some of them will offer also offer services such as custody and different um, different you know offerings for institutional clients as well. So any you know pension funds, hedge fund managers, anything like that. Um, so yeah, so they often have a range of services, but trading is obviously the big one. You know, they essentially want to have you know investors who are interested to help kind of uh, beef up the activity on their platform. But they also need to be scrutinizing and make sure that they're you know not adding coins that are just you know. Com- Completely fraudulent. So, Kat, when when you think about, and this is super simplistic, but you have the rules and and the exchanges that are abiding by the rules, and maybe the binances that are maybe not as clear how they stand on it, and then you've got obviously the regulators. Where do we think that the regulators are just going to look at? You know, even the these homegrown rules, if you will. How are they going to look at that when the time comes? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, regulators are trying, and we've seen it a lot, especially with comments from the Biden administration. You know, regulators are trying to really kind of wrap their heads around it, and how do you actually impose sort of a framework on this world, which is, you know, meant to be sort of uh, a little more a little more outside, you know, the realms of normal, normal finance. Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot of changes probably over the next few years as regulators start to say, you know, here's what we need from this, from this part of the market. I just feel like there's so many questions got to figure it out. And what are you going to end up with multiple exchanges? Like, I mean, I, I think right? that's exactly right. Right. I mean, that's not without, uh, uh, you know, precedent. That's yeah. how it works. I but, mean, well, one thing that's amazing to me is just how big they've become when such a small portion of the, it the is world crazy, is right? actually uh, using to, them at to this be, point. It's effectively like you, you blinked and it's yeah. gigantic. Yeah. Well, which is what you were saying before we got started is think about what happened in the past decade, like what the next decade brings. I mean, it, it, exactly right. Like 10 years of what we've just gone through. Mm-hmm. And then you think about all the splintering. I'm like thinking of watching Loki just to understand what happens with <laughs> time. But yeah. Oh, man, that's the best reference of the week you're, you're already. Welcome. All right. Thank you so much, Kat Chiklinski and Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
So there have been a flurry of headlines out of China as the Chinese government has been cracking down on data security and the big Chinese companies that collect it all in the crossfire, DD Global. They warned today of an adverse impact after complying with a Chinese order to remove 25 more apps from mobile stories for violations of data security laws. So much going on, Tim. You and I have been talking about it. We couldn't wait to kind of catch up with Andy Brown. He's been on vacation, but he's here now because we know China is clearly on a mission. Andy, of course, Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director uh, in our Interactive Brokers studio. The reason we want to talk to you is you understand China like no other, to be quite honest. You've worked there, lived there, um, worked for the Wall Street Journal for a long time. What, what is the mission that China's on right now? What we're seeing right now is further evidence that the U.S. and Chinese economies are decoupling. The relationship is falling apart. We've seen it in the tech space. We've seen it in the Internet space. And now we're starting to see it in capital markets, that China is effectively making it a lot more difficult uh, for its own companies to access U.S. capital markets, which ironically is exactly what two successive U.S. presidents, starting with Donald Trump and continuing now under Joe Biden, have had in mind. It's their agenda, too. They have been sanctioning Chinese companies and making it more difficult for U.S. investors to buy into their shares. This extends that. What is the motivation? Yeah, well, like why would they do that? Because it seems like they wanted to be a part of the global market scene. Right. Well, you know, data is certainly right at the heart of it. So, um, but also, you know, you have to remember, and this is interesting, and, and people don't, I think, acknowledge this nearly enough, that the Chinese tech sector was really funded and incubated by Western VCs, Western Mm -hmm. private equity. Um, And China is in a different place now. It's a different era. And they really don't need U.S. capital in the same way as they did. And now they're concerned about control over data. They're concerned about it as part of the geopolitical struggle with the United States. And also in terms of economic management, they want the data and control over the data that Chinese tech giants have. I, I get that. That that makes sense. I understand that. But but what does that mean for a company like Disney or a company like Nike or a company like Apple? Three very different companies, but but companies that see the Chinese market as really really important, and companies that are have products that are gobbled up by Chinese consumers. You know. China wants Chinese data in China, stored in China, and subject to, U- to Chinese regulatory control. Which Apple has been able to figure out a way to successfully navigate these they have, waters. Th- this, is, this is much more about Chinese companies going offshore to get foreign right. investment. But, but if, if we're indeed seeing a decoupling of these two economies, then I wonder about the companies that don't necessarily have data like a Nike, for example, or a Disney? Are, are, is, are we going to see a decoupling there that as well? Ha- that has to be the risk. Any U.S. company, any foreign company that has access to Chinese data uh, could find itself 
as this decoupling progresses in a vulnerable position. Over the weekend, we saw a regulation coming out, new rules coming out that says that any Chinese company that has over one uh, internet company that ho- has over one million subscribers is going to be subject to a cybersecurity review before it can list overseas. That basically accounts for every internet company in China. Right, exactly. That's a small number of users. <laughs> it's time. Uh, right. So, Andy, what's the risk for China in all of this? Are, yeah. Is there a real risk for them of kind of cutting themselves off, it feels like? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the, 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 the risk is that you're going to disincentivize innovation in China. Um, they're going after their tech champions, starting with Alibaba. You know, Jack Ma, uh, the founder, co-founder of, of Alibaba, was the most public figure in China. You don't hear from him anymore. Right. He's 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 gone. He's he's gone to ground. They've effectively silenced him. Alibaba has lost one third of its market value since the whole business started with the listing of Ant Financial, which was going to be the biggest Chinese foreign listing in history. And now that's extended. Now Tencent is under pressure. Now Meituan is under under pressure. And these are giants of of Chinese innovation. What does it mean for a company like ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok? This is a company that Bloomberg has reported that in the private markets, it's valued at $250 billion. Massive. Right. So so TikTok might well have been one of those companies that was going to go offshore. We don't know quite what its plans were. And now, of course, this casts a doubt about whether it's ever going to list overseas. Some of these companies, however, might end up in Hong Kong. The problem there is that actually the hurdle, the regulatory hurdle, for listing in Hong Kong and in the mainland are substantially higher than they are in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you, may, you might get some companies that won't list at all as a result of this. What I don't understand is I feel like you know China has been working to be part of kind of the mainstream world, right? They want to be innovators. They want to be in the capital markets. They're trying to attack, bring in rather the, the global financial sector. It feels like they're just turning their back on the world are they in essence and will they isolate themselves and does it really matter because they've got a billion plus and they can probably do just fine it feels like the world is breaking into of tech is breaking into two wow. you're going to have a china and a chinese sphere of tech influence and then a u.s u.s influenced sphere uh the breaking right. apart of of the global economy is one of the greatest risks to global growth going forward will the rest of the world have to make clear choices about i'm with i'm either with the u.s or i'm with china the world doesn't want to have to make those choices. China's neighbors certainly don't want to make those choices. But increasingly, it looks like they're going to have to choose. What is, all right, 20 seconds left. Don't hate me because I'm jamming you. But what does it mean for investors, global investors, how they have to look at this? You know, it doesn't mean that U.S. investors are cut off from investing in Chinese Internet companies. You can still invest as an American investor through this tie-up between Hong Kong, Shanghai, Shenzhen stock exchanges. It does, however, have a pretty big, profound impact on the likes of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, who made a lot of money last year out of a very thick pipeline of Chinese listings. And that pipeline is now drying up. The IPO market. This is why we were waiting for you, Andy Brown. Thank you so much. Good to have you back. Editorial Director of Bloomberg New Economy here in our studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the 
question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, we've just got about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. What a Monday. Uh, let's get to it with Brian Jacobson, multi-asset strategist over at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $509 billion in assets under management on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Brian, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. So when you look at this week, there's a lot going on. There's economic data. Jay Powell will be uh, going up before Congress in a couple of days of testimony. And then there's the big bank earnings, along with some uh, some other earnings that are coming out. Is it all about the big bank? Thanks for you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, well, it's probably about the the bucks and the playoffs for me. Or, or, uh, <laughs> the Love your but, honesty. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know, it is really about the bank earnings. Earnings season is kicking off, and um, I have uh, worked with Margie Patel, who you've had on the show yeah. before. And, you know, and uh, she taught me you know, a long time ago: pay attention to what the banks are saying as far as with the guidance. Uh, and that's I've sort of lived by that, and so far it's worked out pretty well. Uh, you know, if they're saying that the economic recovery is gathering steam, because they really do have the boots on the ground in order to see what's going on with not just you know big corporate America, but with small and medium-sized enterprises and households. They really do have their pulse on the uh, health of the economy. And that's what I'm really interested in looking at. What specifically are you going to be listening for, 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 for guidance, for commentary on the economy from these executives this week, Brian? Yeah, I'm really hoping to hear about commentary as far as uh, loan demand. Uh, okay. We know that banks are ready, willing, and able uh, to lend, but is the demand there for it? Uh, and uh, in the area do that you mean, might mean that do we you're, are you talking the small business? Or what are you talking specifically with loan demand? Yeah, ma- mainly with small businesses uh, as far as their willingness to uh, take out uh, loans to expand. So it really is looking at the small business lending because so far, if you look at what banks have done effectively, is originate loans that are guaranteed by the government. And mm-hmm. what we'd like to see is more of the risk-taking, holding it on their own balance sheets with the banks, uh, which can also be higher uh, profit margin uh, loans. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we're actually overweight financials and more cyclical areas in a lot of our portfolios on my team is because we do think that is going to begin to happen. And so we're we're hoping to see confirming evidence of it. So you would be taking position ahead of the the results, the quarterly results on some of these big banks? They're they're up today. And there are our top performing major industry group in the S&P 500, the big banks, uh, you're seeing some significant gains here and really providing momentum for the overall trade. Would you be taking positions ahead of those results? Oh, well, that is how we have been positioned okay. the portfolios in anticipation of it, yes. And so, uh, you know, we were uh, overweight cyclical areas like industrials, uh, but we've sort of rotated a little bit more into, uh, like, the financials and materials getting more exposure like that. But a lot of it is also rotating more towards Europe and emerging markets, uh, where we think that, uh, you know, they're about a season behind us in terms of with the vaccination rollout and the economic recovery. And so we think that they might be a season behind us in terms of uh, the market moves. Hey, how worried are you about in terms of some of the headlines we're getting out of China specifically when it comes to their growth rates and tempering back some of the growth that we've seen? China, so crucial to overall global growth. 
Should we be nervous as investors when we start to see some of the growth numbers in China start to be reined in? We, we've seen China also doing taking steps, the Chinese government and the Chinese financial system, to kind of help juice their economic growth because they, too, are seeing the slowdown. Oh, they are seeing that slowdown. Yeah, coming out of the COVID recovery, you know, they were the they were the first ones in, and then they were the first ones out. Uh, it was mainly led by manufacturing, and then by on the retail side. And it doesn't seem like the retail side is getting, getting a massive amount of traction. And so I think that it does merit monitoring what's going on with the Chinese growth numbers. But uh, you know, they do seem to want to almost play with the throttle a little bit. And the most recent one is as far as reducing reserve requirements for banks in order to stimulate lending. Um, so I think that it does merit monitoring, but we're not too worried about them having any sort of like hard landing or anything of those sorts, because, uh, you know, thus far, uh, the, while the growth rates have slowed, it's still a pretty aggressive growth rate that we're seeing coming out of China. Uh, Brian, what about, you know, later in the, this is a very busy week. As Carol mentioned, a ton of economic data. We have bank earnings. Um, also, Fed Chair Powell heading to Capitol Hill uh, for two days of, of testimony about the economy, uh, about monetary policy. Uh, what are you watching for there? Do you think that, I mean, we've seen Powell in the past. He's been very restrained when, when like many Fed chairs of, of, of past, uh, when it comes to answering questions. Do you expect anything different than we saw in, in, in minutes? Do you expect anything different than we saw at a press conference? Yeah, it's almost like we see them uh, every week, uh, yes. sometimes every day. And so it's, uh, you know, what changes from one moment to the next. But I think that with Chair Powell's testimony, um, he might want to start slow walking things towards tapering. Right? Uh, we know that uh, they didn't want to slow think walk. About I think it's a tapering. crawl, Brian. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's more like a, this uh, a glacial pace towards tapering, and I think that's maybe what we're going to see in his testimony is that hey, you know what? The inflation data was a little bit stronger than we thought, but the growth numbers are stronger than we thought. We still have plenty of room in order to, um, you know, before we get to having inflation being a problem, we have plenty of tools to deal with this. Does. And so, yeah, we're having the conversation about tapering. And so I think that maybe he'll mention that a few more times. So before it was like, you know, not even on the table. And now it's become a centerpiece of the conversation of the, the members of the FOMC. And so we'll probably just hear a little bit more about that during his testimony. Uh, in terms of things to be concerned about, there's always a list out there. And we keep trying to assess the risks of, you know, the variants that are coming out with the virus and what that could mean for the economy. Tim and I are going to be talking to a bunch of CEOs this week in different sectors, the cruise industry and industrials. How do you factor in, assess, strategize around what might come next when it comes to COVID? Yeah, it, for us, it's more about uh, sentiment at the moment, right? A uh, big part of the moves in the markets has been about the anticipation of the economic recovery, and we're beginning to see evidence of that, of those things that the market was anticipating. Uh, and while we have gone past the, well, we think we have gone past the peak inflationary fears, we may have also gone past the peak optimism fears or the peak optimism about growth, right? So you had peak inflation fears coupled with peak growth optimism, and that created an environment with yields rising, equity still continuing to charge ahead. But if uh, sentiment is beginning to shift towards, you know, is this as good as it gets? Um, that's where it could create some more headwinds for the equity markets until maybe we see the labor market significantly improve, which we don't think we're going to see more signs of that 
at definitive signs of it until probably the fourth quarter of this year. So we're actually preparing ourselves more to be a little bit more neutral in terms of positioning um, and uh, to anticipate some volatility through the summer months here, uh, but setting us up for probably a pretty decent fourth quarter. It's the master sell-off. That's what we call it. Because every time I go away in August, the last few summers, the last few years, you know, kind of pre-COVID, we would always get a a pretty decent sell-off in August. I always thought it was because it's my birthday in August. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's the Brian Jacobson uh, birthday (laughs) sell-off. It's going to go by multiple names. All right. Listen, Brian, thank you so much. Brian Jacobson, multi-asset strategist over at Wells Fargo Asset Management, $509 billion in assets under management on the phone from Milwaukee. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.